Okay, we're on. Okay, great. So we're going to a topic I enjoy a lot today, which is as follows. Uh, if we look through Sefer Breshit, we'll discover that the patriarchs, the Avot, have a lot of nervousness. Okay, I think we thought about uh, famous stories. We'll notice, let's, let's say, uh, Yaakov is quite nervous before meeting Esav. Right, it says, Yaakov right? He's very distressed. And Avraham, after the battle of the four kings, when he defeats the four kings, the next parak in Perak Devav, it says, God says to Avraham, Al Tira Avraham, do not be afraid. I'm going to protect you. So it certainly sounds like he's afraid. Uh, you don't say, don't be afraid unless someone's scared. And even though it doesn't say what he's afraid of, one imagines it might have to do with the previous chapter. You know, just winning a war could still come with tension. You're afraid that they'll try to get vengeance. Maybe you're afraid that you killed innocents. There could be a lot of things you're afraid of. So we have Avram being afraid. We have Yaakov being afraid. And there are other examples also. Now, I think one could ask, wait, don't the Avot get a lot of promises? They get a lot of divine guarantees. And the guarantees often have to do with you're going to have many, many children, right? Abundant offspring. That is something all the Avod hear a lot. And uh, you're going to get the land of Israel one day. So it seems like in a certain sense, they could function with just a guarantee, right? They know that things are going to work out. And at that point, why are they so nervous? And I think it's a very important question because it gets to the root of what prophecy is about. Because let's say someone gets divine promises of bounty or rain, defeating one's enemies or the like. Does that take all the drama out of religious life? Like you kind of, oh, I know the answers already. I know I'm going to be a big success. And therefore, there's really uh, nothing to be afraid of. But what if we discover that even when one has divine promises, uh, drama remains? It's not true that the end result is 100% clear. And therefore, it makes sense that the other are nervous. But the question, of course, would be, like, if one, like, obviously, we're not Avaman, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and Sarah, and Rachel, etc. We don't get direct divine communication. But if we did, and God just assured us that X was going to happen, maybe that should take all the nervousness out of life. So we're going to look at a couple of categories to figure out why there might still be nervousness. Okay, so I'm going to do share screen now. Hopefully this will work well. And uh, here we go. Okay. All right, everybody good? We can all see it? Okay, great. Not, not yet. There we go. Oh, okay. How about now? Yeah. Yeah, everybody good? Okay, great. So let's see here. We're going to see either five or six solutions to the problem. I always like it when there are many solutions, and they're not mutually exclusive. Okay. So let's start with the Radak. Now, this is an, this is going to this comes up a lot in Brashit, right? Because we have many stories in Brashit where the Avot either express fear or take certain initiatives. So here's a good example. What happens when Avram and Sarah show up in the land of Israel? So pretty soon into their uh, living in Israel stage, there's a famine. And famously, Avram goes down to Egypt, right, to get food, right? When there's a famine in Canaan, Egypt, because of the Nile, tends to have food, and that's the go-to move, right? You go to Egypt for sustenance. So I don't know if you know this, but there's a famous Ramban that's actually critical of Avram. 
right? Oh, we say we have more people in the waiting room. Let me just let them in. Give me one second. Okay, I think that worked. Let's see. Okay. I hope it worked. Now let me go to full screen for one second to see who's in here. Okay, that's fine. Okay, great. So Ramban is actually critical of Avra. He thinks, ah, I should greet him. Uh, my mom made it. Excellent. Hello, ma mom. Okay. Excellent. Uh, Avi Tram, good to see you. Okay, who, who else joined us here? Let's see. Ah, we, we have Natan Ehrenreich. Okay. Doing great stuff at YU. And we have David Glassman, Jay Glassman's dad. D David Glassman, you're going to become my most serious student. You're always there. Excellent. Okay. Um, so the Radak uh, does not agree with Ramban. He's not critical of, of Avram for going to Egypt. Look what he says here in the first line. Okay, I'm pointing to where I am. The low samach al He did not rely on God's promise. Wait, I mean, why did he go to Egypt? God promised him it doesn't work out. Ki amar shema yigrom hachet. There it is. That was the line. Perhaps sin will have some causal role here. Uh, now, what is he claiming? This is fascinating. What if we said that every prophecy, okay, every prophecy comes with an implicit condition. That what's the prophecy basically saying? The prophecy is saying X will happen assuming you behave in the way that the prophecy is assuming. I mean, if you get a, I'll give you a good example. Let's say you get a prophesized punishment. So maybe implicit in the prophesized punishment is if you do tshuva, if you turn your life around, then you won't get the punishment. Maybe that's implicit, right? And I'll give you a great example, right? Let's think about a beautiful Sefer, Sefer Yonah. What does Yonah say to the people of Nineveh? Very, very brief prophecy. Od arba'im yom, another 40 days, v'ninveh nepachet, and Nineveh will be destroyed. So when Nineveh is not destroyed, how many of us react, oh, Yonah's a false prophet? No, we don't say Yonah's a false prophet. What do we say? We say that there was an implicit clause. What was Yonah really saying to the people of Nineveh? Another 40 days, you'll be destroyed if you don't get your act together. But if you do get your act together, if you start to behave in a more ethical fashion, then you won't be destroyed. What if I say that that's even true about positive prophecies? What if positive prophecies come with an implicit condition or an implicit clause? Okay, so then, then you could deal with all of this. Okay, I should just greet two uh, people here. First of all, we're very excited that Alicia Shmalo joined this year because it means he and his mom are on the same shear, although they're not in the same room or the same city, but they are in the same shear, which is kind of exciting. Oh, I wonder if my... No, I, I, somehow in my gallery, you're right next to each other. I wonder if there's like some like Jewish mother feature where like you get put next to your son in the gallery. That would be a great feature. Okay, so uh, in any case, and I think Kevin Wolf joined. Kevin, there's good news because Kevin Wolf has heard almost every share I've given, but I think this might be a new one. So maybe even Kevin will learn something. Very exciting. Okay, so- I'm excited to learn. Okay, so, but wouldn't that solve all our problems? So look what he goes to say. He goes to say, So to Jacob's afraid, even though he got a promise. So again, as long as we're willing to assume that divine prophecies are implicitly conditional, our whole question falls away. Okay, is everyone good so far? So this is solution number one. We'll see some questions on this solution in a second. But solution would say that even though you get a divine prophecy, it doesn't mean it's a guarantee. 
it always comes with a condition. If it's a punishment, if you keep acting badly, this will happen. But if the people of Nineveh turn it around, they don't get the punishment. And even if it's a promise of divine bounty, so too, um, so too the prophecy is conditional on behaving properly. So all the other could have been nervous that they'd somehow done the wrong thing, right? I'll even give you a, a nice example, actually. Okay, there's, by the way, I'm going to just, just because of time constraints, so I'm pretty much going to lecture and not ask the crowd questions, but feel free to send in stuff in the chat. That, that might be the easiest way if you want to make a comment or ask a question. Uh, I think the Yaakov Asav is a great example. Actually, maybe I'll throw a question to the crowd, despite what I just said. Okay, why might Yaakov think that Asav is more meritorious than him? I think it actually fits beautifully. There's one very good reason, or one very important mitzvah, which Yaakov could easily argue Asaph has outdone him by far. Which mitzvah is that, of course? The Kibbutz of Aim. Excellent. Very good. Not only, but think about Alicia's point. Not only does Asaph clearly manifest Kibbutz of Aim, Yaakov hasn't seen his dad in 20 years, right? So he clearly has not done very much Kibbutz of Aim while he was hanging out with Lovin's family. So Yaakov might have a sense of Shemi Gomachei. Right. Uh, you know, I don't really deserve it anymore because my brother has been taking care of dad for 20 years while I've been, you know, on the farm, you know, marrying Rachel and Leah, etc. OK, so again, we've got answer number one on the board that the fear is because you might have sinned and lost the promise. Now, I think some of you are probably thinking that there might be a limitation on this answer. Uh, well, two questions, really. I imagine because we have a knowledgeable crowd. Some of you have learned the idea that maybe there's a difference between positive prophecies and negative prophecies. So the Rambam is a big fan of this. The Rambam thinks that positive prophecies are locked in, in fact, and negative prophecies are subject to revision. Because again, the argument would be God would prefer to reward than to punish. So punishments come with an implicit condition. Oh, but if you turn it around, you won't get the punishment. But rewards, maybe they're just locked in forever. So I just want to point out, obviously, the Rambam would undermine our first answer. But just realize not, even though a lot of you have probably learned this, not everybody's on the Rambam's team on this one. Not everybody thinks that there's a difference between positive and negative prophecies. And maybe the standard of most prophecies is that they're conditional. Okay, so let's go down a little bit in the source sheet and see two interesting sources about this issue. Okay, here we go. Maybe actually... Ah, here we go. Maybe we'll go not to the positive negative question first and to a different point. Okay, now after after the Akeda, there are many places where God makes promises to the other. But one of them is after the Akeda. But look what it says there. It doesn't only say a promise, it says, I swear. So look at Ted Stein, the Radak there, Vayomer Binishpati, Hosiflo Bibracha Hazot Hashvuah. Ah, but here he adds an oath. Okay, now here comes the key point. Now what emerges, maybe there's a difference between a promise with an oath and a promise without an oath. And here he says, Why do he add a shvua? Here's the line. Maybe I'll put it in red once again. The pedagogic uh, master stroke here. Let's see if this works. Okay, why does he add a shua? Ah, she'afal pi she'yechtu banav. Even if my son sin, lo yishbetum yodgai gadolof enough. So notice what he's just done. This is really interesting. 
Maybe their divine promises are conditional, but sometimes God adds an element that makes it unconditional. So one such element would be a shvua. Maybe if God doesn't make a promise, but takes an oath, that moves it from the conditional to the non-conditional. Now, I think you guys will get this right away. Is there any other concept like that? A word, perhaps, that makes a promise more binding? Something else that happens occasionally in Breshit, besides shvua. What other promises would you guys say might be more binding, as it were? A greater commitment. Give me the Hebrew word. If it includes A? A neder. Okay, good. But besides oaths, I'll give you a hint. You have it with Avram, you have this word. You have it with Noah after the flood. What does God make? It's the bris. bris. Very good. Alicia Shmuel, you get to be a, a dominant force in front of your mom. Very exciting. Okay. What about a breach? Maybe the whole idea of a breach is that it's locked in. So I just want to point out, this might be an interesting limitation, even on the first theory. Again, theory one was that prophecies are implicitly conditional. Maybe that's true till they're accompanied by a Brit or a Shvua. But if that would be true, we might still raise the question, anytime there's a Brit or a Shvua, then really there shouldn't have been fear. Okay? Now I'm going to leave aside for now. I'd like to do the positive negative, but I want to get to another answer first. We'll see. We might get to it at the end. Okay, so guys, I just want to do a brief summary for now, guys. Oh, I see there's a chat point. Let's see what we got here. Ah, David Glassman. Yes, David Glassman. Amazing. You are an, a natural Midrash man. Fascinating. Okay, see, guys, he, he, he thought of a Midrash on his own. That was very clever. Okay, there's an idea that Yaakov received payback, as it were, because basically the, there's a Rashi that works this out. That the claim is that the amount of time Yosef is apart from Yaakov matches the amount of time that Yaakov is apart from Yitzchak. Now, I, I don't get into it, David. If you want, you can email me later. Rashi works out that it's 22 years. Okay. Now, it takes a little bit of work why the Yaakov example is 22 years. Because, I, actually, I'll just do this for one second. Sorry. just uh, Guys, you should never get me on a good tangent. I can't resist. With Yosef, it's pretty easy to get to 22. Because Yosef is 17 when the brothers sell him. He is 30 when he comes out of jail. All that is explicit. Again, 17 when he's sold, 30 when he's taken out of jail. And then there are seven years of plenty and two years of famine. A lot of people don't realize this. The brothers come down after two years of famine. So it's pretty simple, right? 17 to 30 to 37 to 39. So that means that Yosef is in Egypt apart from his family for 22 years. Okay, on the other side, when Yaakov is arguing with Lavan, Yaakov says, I've been working hard for you for 20 years. But Rashi assumes that, this is very interesting actually, in Yaakov's ver journey back to Canaan, he stops along the way, which is kind of an interesting assumption. And because he stops along the way, he doesn't actually get back to his dad for 22 years. Okay, so David Glassman, very good. There is exactly a Midrashic theme like that, which Rashi picks up on. Okay. And not necessarily related to the prophecy. Uh, what do you mean by related to the prophecy? Yeah. What do you mean? I mean that um, that uh, they were being um, punished or so for... I, I, look, there's two separate points here. Like one is <laughs> I'm arguing that Yaakov may have been nervous about encountering Esau because he felt he was derelict in keeping of aim. I, I should go a step further, guys. It's even deeper psychologically. Okay, by the way, I think Moshe Metz is joined this year. Moshe Metz, nice to see you. Nice to see you too. How's Binghamton? It's great. It's great. I'm just on my way to get lunch right now. Okay, great. Okay, so 
I should make a further point. It's even deeper. Like, why would Yaakov feel he's Daryl's going to keep it a name? So I just said, because he hasn't been home for 20 years. But there's a stronger reason. Again, what he, what's the last thing he did before leaving? He fooled his old father. So you could easily imagine Yaakov with guilt feelings. Like, imagine this, because I think it makes so much psychological sense. Yaakov fools his father into giving the bracha, and then he's not home for 20 years or 22 years. Right. So he would feel like I have not been a stalwart and keep it of aim. So at that point, maybe he feels that all divine promises are off. Right. Why should I, again, assume the Radak is right, that they're conditional. I failed the condition. So, uh, David, so I think you're right about that. That might be separate from the idea that Yosef is comeuppance. Okay. They're related ideas, but they don't have to go together. Okay. We're now going to go to a second answer. I think this is also a very good answer. Let's go down to the Ibn Ezra. He goes a different approach. Okay. Now, this is also prior to Yaakov meeting Esav. We just explored the idea that, um, that Yaakov is nervous that he's been sinful. But he has a different approach. Here we go. Vim Hashem Amarlo. But wait, God said to him, Your descents will be like the dust of the earth. Namely, you're going to have a huge family. So what's he nervous about? But now the Ibn Ezra makes a great point. Lo Yada, he did not know. Imal Eile. Was it these kids? Oh, al achirim, or other kids. And I think this is a really, really good point. Let's say I feel I have a divine guarantee, but I still don't know how it's going to play out. And couldn't the guarantee play out in a way that's rather painful to me? Meaning, think about the following. What if Esav killed nine of Yaakov's 12 children, or 13, right? So at, at that point, does that contradict the prophecy? The promise? Not at all. Right, whatever surviving kids could build a great nation and inherit Canaan and get very large and prosperous. So God could say, I fulfill my promise. What do you want? But clearly, a father would not want to lose nine children. Right. So I think it's another idea would be we don't really have all the answers because even if we have the answer on some level, right, we don't have how it's going to play out. Right. So at that point, even the believing Jew would have great reason for nervousness. Okay, so I, I just give you an example to highlight, I think, how powerful the Ibn Ezra's idea is. I, I've noticed a really interesting pattern, okay, which is sometimes there's a prophecy that depends on a certain amount of years passing. Okay, I, Alicia, I think you probably heard this from me already. But what seems to be true every time there's a prophecy of a certain amount of years passing, there seems to be ambiguity had it counts. So here's a great example. Let's say Yermio gets up one day and says, guess what? Golod Bavel is going to be a 70-year endeavor. Okay, you're only going to be in Bavel for 70 years, then you'll come back. So all of us might think, oh, so we've got the answer. After 70 years, the problem's over. But what if someone says, wait, but what calls, how do I define when Gullet Bavel began? Guys, great historical events are not so easy to define. Like, when did World War II start? Okay, when Germany annexed you know, Czechoslovakia, when they attacked Poland, when Britain declared war. Like, you can't point to a given moment necessarily. So now says the, I think it works out here, right? In the Zimna of Gemar Megillah that, you know, in Achashverosh's palace, there was debate, did the 70 years end or not, right? And the same thing, notice with Mitzrayim, when we say they're going to be in Avdut, in servitude for 400 years, some people show up and say, yeah, and we start counting from, you know, the birth of Yitzchak, which doesn't sound like, uh, you know, servitude in Egypt. So now I would like to argue a second category altogether. Category two is we might know the answer, we have no idea how it's going to play out. And at that point, there's great reason for nervousness. And here, the Ibn Ezra really does it very well. 
right? Asaph could kill many people in Yaakov's camp without it at all contradicting the divine promise. Okay, any comments so far? We're good? Okay, so we now have two good answers on the board. Okay, we've got the Radak's answer and the Benesu's answer. Okay, let us go to another Radak. This is one of my favorite, favorite Radaks, and I'll tell you why I love it. Okay, so I don't know if, how many of you have had the same difficulties with me. I don't know how often you like give a speech or give a shear in Hebrew. But when I give a shear in Hebrew, there's two mistakes I tend to make. And thankfully, sometimes my, my sons come and they point them out to me. Okay, the two mistakes I tend to make are as follows. One is Americans are not so great at Zachar Nekeva. Obviously, English is a does not have gendered you know, language. So at that point, we're not used to it. And what's difficult for me sometimes in a long sense is to remember like which noun the verb is modifying. Okay, that's the tricky thing. Like sometimes we will do the Zachronikeva, the immediately preceding word, but that's not actually the word that we want, right? So I'll make my Zachronikeva mistakes. And the other mistake is leaving out the word et, because it's really not natural for an English speaker to say the word et because there is no parallel. So let's say I want to say, close the door. So I'm likely to say, Sagar Hadelet. But if I'd really be a native Hebrew speaker, I would say Sagar et hadelet. Okay, so that, if you'll know, so I, in the old days, I used to give shir, and, you know, Zachary or Mordechai would come up and said, Abba, great shir, you left out four ets. Okay, that would be, they, they would have a count. Now, I believe, I, I've heard this many times, I never looked it up, but I believe that Ben-Gurion actually wanted to get rid of the word et, because he argued it didn't really accomplish anything. And then he apparently lost that one, like the Hebrew purists beat him out. Okay, so with that background, this redoc made me very happy. Because I always to think, what is that word et doing? It's just a source of trouble. Okay, but here's the first time where it actually makes a difference. And you see it's very interesting because it's the absence of it that makes a difference. Okay, here we go. With that background. So remember that Rivka gets a prophecy of, uh, remember she has twins and she, well, she has kids and she doesn't know what's going on. So she asks for help. And she is told that Rav Yavod Sa'ir. Now, we usually interpret, sorry, I'll switch the skip, fix this in one second. We usually interpret Rav Yavod Sayer as the elder will serve the younger, right? That's the prophecy that Asa will ultimately be subservient to uh, Yaakov, okay? However, we are now going to see a really interesting radak. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me just get back to my screen here for a second. Okay. And, okay. Here we go. Okay. So the Radak says as follows. Viravya votes here, says the Radak, Lo Zachar Imahem Milat Et. Oh, notice what word is missing here. It's like me. Like the Torah is like me. It leaves out the word et. It could say Viravya vote et hatsair. The older will serve the younger, but it doesn't say that. Shehi Morella Pa'ul. Because et would make it clear what the object of the sentence is. Ah, but now what does he claim? This is really remarkable. Okay, I'll look at the chat question one second. What is now in doubt? Radak would like to argue that it's now ambiguous. Without the word et, you could have two readings. Okay, let's do it slowly. Rav, the elder will serve the younger. Or the Rav, on the older, Yavod Sa'ir, the younger will serve him. So he claims that it is a purposely ambiguous prophecy. 
that actually could go both ways. And which interpretation will be correct is totally dependent on how Am Yisrael behaves, right? Will they, in fact, be in charge of Esav? Or will they be subservient to Esav? Now, that's pretty remarkable. But if that's true, right, if that is true, what the Radak is saying, we have a third possibility, right? Maybe there are some prophecies that are purposely ambiguous. And then at that point, it could go, there's no reason to feel like you have a guarantee. Now, notice again, here's my one redeeming quality of the word et. What made it ambiguous here? Well, not the presence of the word et, but the absence of the word et. That et would clarify who the object is. So if it said Rav Yavod et hat sa'ir, there'd be no ambiguity. Since it says Rav Yavod sa'ir, there is ambiguity. Okay, let me look at the two chat points now. Okay, here we go. Let's see what we got. Ah, there we go. Wait, Alicia, I didn't think you were a Hebrew grammar guy. What's going on there? Uh, I was bad at Hebrew because I hated the arbitrary rules. So whenever I thought I saw an arbitrary rule, I would try and figure out what the rule is. And okay, it actually has go. a very good rule. I think, I think okay. it's a useful word, and actually. I, I would like it. David Glassman, not only is he a star student, but he identifies with Ben-Gurion. Okay. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. There must be a good chapter in it somewhere in a book, like what Ben-Gurion's plan was and why he lost. But... Uh, Okay, but in any case, we now have three ready three answers to my question. Okay, again, answer one that every prophecy is contingent. Answer two, even if it's not contingent, Ibn Ezra says you don't know how it's going to play out. Answer three, what if it's ambiguous to begin with? Okay, let's sneak in two more possibilities and then we'll see how much more time we have. But at that point, I think we'll realize that, and I think it's a good thing, life is about having ambiguity, life is about drama. Like, what would it mean if the other knew all the answers at, of history at the head of time? Like, wh- where, would the, where would the heroism of being, an, uh, of being such a person? Apparently, that's not the human condition. The human condition is about having difficulties, having unsurety. That's what it means to be a human being. Okay, so now let's look at two more approaches. Okay, so there isn't a Barbanel. Now, I admit the Barbanel wouldn't always work, but it might work sometimes. So the Barbanel says... Okay, I'll point to where I am. Let's go. Ah, the beginning. F. Lomar. Okay, here I am. F. Lomar, one could say. Since this is the beginning of his prophetic career, right? This is Yaakov in the dream with the ladder, right? Again, Yaakov before that, right? When he's younger and he steals the bracha, there's no prophecy. There's no divine communication. But when he leaves, he has this, the dream of the ladder. He was unsure. Right? Is it a prophetic dream? Oh, am I a chalom dimyoni? Maybe it's just my imagination. So this is a really interesting point. Like, it, it's not as if prophets don't have regular dreams. And maybe, but certainly in the beginning of your nevuah, it's not so easy to differentiate. So maybe Yaakov thought, this is just my subconscious at work. My subconscious has this interesting idea about angels going up and down the ladder. But it is not at all clear to me that it's nevuah. So that could be a different ambiguity, right? The Radak has an ambiguity. I don't know what the Nevoah means, right? Rav Yehud here. The Barbanel has an ambiguity. I don't know if it's even a prophecy. Ah, but let me ask another question to my good crowd here. Okay, now you might say, Barbanel, that's an intriguing idea, but we never see that. Can anyone tell me an example of someone in Tanakh who is hearing God's voice, but does not realize it at first? Who in Tanakh hears God's voice, but does not realize it at first? Is motion exactly? Or is that a metric? Uh, nope. Good guess, Alicia, but not Moshe. Let's see if somebody just wrote the answer. Ah, oh, Yudah Holm, they're very good. 
by the way, I just want to give credit. I know he's very uh, shy and unassuming. Yehuda Hollander was in a right to the first day of the year, and he made a siyam on Tanakh. And now we see it pays off. He's able to answer the question. Excellent, Yehuda Hollander. Okay, so some of you might remember the story now. Remember Shmuel's young, and he hears the divine voice, but he thinks it's Eli calling him, remember? He keeps running into Eli, and finally at some point, there's a realization that it's prophecy and not Eli talking to him. So that fits very well with the Barbanel, because at least we see there is such a concept in Judaism. There is such a concept as a Navi, in theory, receiving a prophecy and not realizing it. Now, so I just want to toss the Barbanel onto the list as being number four. I'll just mention that obviously this is somewhat limited how much it would work, right? Because clearly, like, let's say someone's an experienced prophet, probably at some point they don't have these doubts anymore. Right, they've learned to differentiate authentic prophecy from just a subconscious dream, but earlier in your career it might work. Okay, let us sneak in one more category, and I'll go to a, a closing point. And the other category is also from a Barbanel. Okay, here we go. Let's pick out the best line here. The Barbanel says, "Okay, where is it? Here we go. Uh, you just put it down there. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Anton Sager, for bringing me dinner. Okay." That's it. Now you're famous, Eitan. Okay, so let's look at... Okay. Aval Atta. Okay, I'm, I'm putting the cursor where I'm up to. Aval Atta shish'arbe sinato oto. You know that Asaph still hates him. V'yadaza b'vur achekoach ha'chiyuniya shel Yaakov hitpa'el mizeh ki ra'a upachad. He saw and was afraid. Ah, va'ink alkozeh uh, I'm not sure what that abbreviation is. Okay. Uh, but what does he say? Haman Sikhlo Hamanigira Koachatma rear Asherlo. Asherlo. Okay, base ah Sikhlo. Sorry. Sikhlo Hamanhigit Koachamitawer. Basically, he says there's an intellectual side to a person and an emotional side. And I think it's true for all of us. There are scenarios where even if we know intellectually we're not in danger, why does that mean that we can't be afraid? Human beings are very complex. Like let's say there's someone in this group that has a fear of heights. And now you're on top of, I know, the Empire State Building. You might know very well that nothing could happen to you, like the barrier is high enough and you're safe, but you're afraid anyway. So if we say to you, but that's irrational, okay, that's the nature of what it means to be a human being, right? You see an army approaching you. It doesn't matter how many guarantees you've been given, right? You get nervous. So I think the Barbanel gives us a, even a fifth possibility. Like maybe nervousness is just the natural human expression to seeing a threat, no matter what you know on some cognitive level. And we try, that's what he talks about at the end, trying to use the seichel to overcome the emotion. Okay, so before I get to the last part of this year, so I say we already have five solutions. So if you think about it, that really means it's not correct to think of the avot as going through life with, oh, I've got a divine guarantee in my pocket. Life is just smooth. I never have any nervousness. And again, I would argue that makes me feel better about the avot. Because again, otherwise they wouldn't really be human beings. Human being, again, I'd say two things. What it means to be human being means you live with uncertainty. What it means to be human being is you live with anxiety and fear. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that's your entire existence, but that's part of who we all are. That's what it means to be human. So at that point, even if the avot get promises, we now have five reasons they could still be unsure. Again, if I am Radak, sin could ruin everything, right? The promise was conditional to begin with. If I'm Ibn Ezra, I don't know how it's going to play out. It could play out in a painful way. So I might think it's guaranteed to happen, but it'll happen painfully. Great. If I am a Barbanel, 
I might say that the prophecy is ambiguous. There's more than one interpretation. I'm not sure where it's going to go. But I should just throw it. I can't resist. That's another approach to Nineveh. By the way, the Barbanel says it there also. What is Yonah's prophecy? In another 40 days, Nineveh ne'apache. But ne'apache could mean both. It'll be overturned and destroyed. Or it'll be overturned morally, right? The society will change. They'll turn over a new leaf, as it were. So maybe there also was a prophecy that had two directions it could go in, depending on what humans decide. So we have the ambiguous prophecy, three. Four, we have ambiguity, if it's prophecy at all. That's the Barbanel wants to claim with Yaakov, with the paradigm of Shmuel. And now we have another Barbanel saying, even if you know all the answers, it is just human to see Asaph coming with 400 women and to be nervous. That is the most basic human emotion there is. Okay. Any comments or questions before I get to the last part? Yeah, for number five, I feel like most human beings will be comforted when they, like imagine number five existed on its own and none of the other answers existed. Most human beings would be pretty okay if God told them that something was going to happen and they were guaranteed for success. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. If you think the other four are like more powerful or extensive categories than five, that's fine with me, Lichon. That is fine. I just wanted to get it out there on the board. I can't resist more possibilities. Maybe it's a weakness, but I just can't resist. Okay. So let's go to the last part here. What if someone says to me, this is all very nice, but wait, right, well, you're, you're like kind of frightening us because you've just said uh, with all my like waxing eloquent that the human condition involves uncertainty and the human condition involves fear. Someone could easily say, but what about feeling confident? What about feeling, you know, secure? Isn't that part of what a human being would want also? Like, I think all of us, you know, we all suffer with uh, anxiety on some level, something we're anxious about. Right. So is there any way to kind of get beyond that? Is there any way to kind of feel secure? So there's a beautiful, beautiful piece in Rav Hirsch, which we might just not read inside because we don't have so much time left. But I'll summarize it, but I'm putting it up here. If anybody wants to read it, I think it's very beautiful. And again, as I say, guys, this is one of my classic irrational moves, because I always argue that we always have to read in Hebrew because you lose things in translation. You want to read things in the original, which I'm totally convinced of. I see it every day. Like your translation is every translation is making a choice. Even today, I was just teaching like an hour ago, Parshat Lech Lecha. And when Avram's told, leave Artzcha, Muladcha, Beiravicha, you know, three different English translations in the room had different translations for Muladcha. So you got to read in the original. So I am totally convinced. Of course, with Rav Hirsch, it's a pretty bad argument because the original is German. Okay. So I admit, Yuda Hollander, in your spare time, if you want to read it in English and not Hebrew, I cannot really complain, right? You are, the English might be a better, for all I know, it's a better translation than the Hebrew, I have no idea. But I just like the Hebrew language. So I, I always use my reverse sources in Hebrew, even though I admit I do not have a good argument why we have to do so. Okay. I'm wondering, just curious, is, oh, probably actually we do have two people. I was going to say, is there anybody in the room who could read uh, reverse in the original? But Uli, you and uh, your wife could, right? Uh, there we go, see? We have two people in this room who have no excuse for reading this Hebrew source. They should be reversed in the original German. Okay. So in any case, there's a very interesting thing in chapter 18 of Dvarim, where the Psukim contrast a prophet with a magician or a soothsayer. So first it says, don't be like, don't follow the soothsayer, don't follow the necromancer, don't follow the wizard, go to the prophet. But the question is, so clearly there's a contrast being drawn between the prophet and the wizard or the soothsayer. But what is the nature of that contrast? So I'm gonna do this all without reading inside, but some other commentaries say, here's the nature of the contrast, that 
the prophet has a better batting average than the wizard. I mean, wizards will get, I don't know, 52% of the predictions, right? And prophets get them all right. So at that point, you're basically saying the prophet has the same role, the same job description as the wizard, just the prophet is better at it. But some commentators refuse to say that. And they say, no, no, it's not the same. And Rav Hirsch is very angry with this. Rav Hirsch says, here's the difference. I go to the oracle, I go to the soothsayer because he's got information I need. Like, I want to know where to invest my money. So I go to the oracle and say, how do I become wealthy? That's the relationship. But I might not go to the prophet. The prophet comes to me. And he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. He tells me what I don't want to hear. He says, why are you persecuting the widow and the orphan? Okay, why are you giving a hard time to the person who owes you money? That's what happens. He says, it's not the prophet's better at predicting things. The prophet is a totally different job description. And I think one thing that works very well, Rav Hirsch, think about the relationship between prophets and kings and the relationship between oracles and royals in other cultures. Very often the royal family keeps along some local wizard or stargazer to get the information they need. Again, the oracle, the stargazer is serving the monarch. Whereas, think about Sefer Malachim, right? Or Sefer Shmuel. Prophets show up and do not exactly tell the king what he wants to hear, right? Natana Navi tells David he sinned for his act with Bathsheba, right? Ahab shows, uh, sorry, Ahab is given a hard time by Elio, right? So at that point, it's a totally different job description. So now, but what does that mean? So that means that we're not trying to find out the future from the prophet. Okay, so if her says, maybe we'll just read the first two lines inside. It's very, very beautiful, I think. Okay, so again, if I'm other Mepharshim, prophets also give me future information. And he's just much better at it than the soothsayer. But if I'm Rav Hirsch, that's not his job. He might say a prophecy, but that's only servicing his job. His real job is to try to get us to be better human beings. So here we go. Says Rav Hirsch in the beginning here. We're only interested in asking God about our future. But we would have asked God would knowledge of the future be needed? I mean, a virgin is going to argue we don't need knowledge of the future. Why? If not for the fact, God has already given us in his Torah, teachings about how we should act. And he says it more carefully as we go along, but I'm not going to do it inside right now. What is our first argument, guys? We do have clarity. We have clarity about what our mission is, how to be a good person. We don't need clarity about the future because you can feel confident in how you're behaving. Now, I admit some of us, certainly in our you know, modern or postmodern skeptical world, might not have confidence about that either, which is a whole separate question. But I think a lot of people feel pretty convinced, you know, it's better to help the poor than to, you know, than to punch children. We feel pretty confident about that. So at that point, you might say, no, no, we don't go through life in a constant existential crisis because even if we don't know, right, what's going to happen, we feel confident about the values we're committed to. And maybe that's enough to work with. So I would like to end by arguing that, that I argue the whole first half of this year, not the first half, a good deal this year, almost like a, in favor of ambiguity, in favor of anxiety and not being sure, which I think is true. Uh, Len, very good. Yeah, I, I basically agree. Prophecy is Musser. Okay, I'll, I'll get back to you in a second, Len. Uh, so I've been arguing in favor of anxiety and not being sure, but I don't want anyone to feel, oh, that means that that's life. 
life is just about being unsure every second. I think we have our moments of being unsure, but when it comes to our core value system, we often do feel pretty confident that we'd like to be nicer people, more honest people, more spiritual people, uh, less arrogant, whatever the case, more truthful. So at that point, it's like we do have a as a guidebook in hand, as it were. And that can give a modicum of security as we approach the ambiguities of existence. Okay, so I say one thing, Len is right. In a certain sense, the prophets give musr. Now you might say to me, what about the predictions? So I would say the predictions go with a musr, meaning what is the essential message of Yonah to Ninveh? Not that you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. The essential message is stop being engaged in theft, right? Stop, uh, no, stop being mean to the poor in your community. That's the essential message to Ninveh. But part of the message is, and if you don't do so, you'll be destroyed in 40 days. So I'm not denying there's a predictive element, but it may be, according to Hirsch, and I very much identify with this, the predictive element is secondary, right? The main thing is the prophet coming to you to get you to clean up your act. Okay, anybody with a comment or question on what we've done here? Okay, Alicia, take um, it away. Yeah. Yeah, so Rav Hirsch is basically looking at the prophecy we find in Nach and calling that prophecy. But the prophecy found in Chamesh Chamesh Torah are extremely different. It's very little Musar. It's almost always just God trying to communicate information. Um, that is an excellent question. Especially about the Avos. And isn't, isn't your question originally about the Avos? Yes. You get prophecy yes. in the future. See, that's what I always say. It is, I, I'm really lucky in life because I very much enjoy what I do. And people will say to me, but Rabbi, have you given this year five times before? it invariably happens that some new point comes up. Okay, so that's why, guys, I am not bored. I'm going to give this year again tomorrow. I bet, you know what? I bet if I gave this year to the same people tomorrow, a new point would still come up. Okay, that'd be an interesting experiment, although I'm not going to ask you guys to do it. Okay, but- You gave this year last year to me, Rob, by the way. Okay, there we go. But I, I meant at least to try to create the exact experiment, right? The same, I know 17 people who are on, online right now. I think it would be an interesting social experiment. Okay, but in any case, let me just clarify why I like Alicia's question a lot. Because people usually ask me, oh, let me let me throw it to the crowd. Well, one more thing. I, I'm saying that the prophet comes to you and tells you what you're doing wrong. You don't go to the prophet for help. But can anyone tell me, there is a classic example in Nach, actually, where someone goes to the prophet for purely mundane help. There is one counterexample to reverse. Someone goes to the prophet for a very, very mundane piece of information. And you remember who it is? Yudah Hollander. Shaul going to the... Oh, that was terrific. Who was that? I, I couldn't tell who it was. Oh, very good. See, guys, Dan Fendel is not only much more witted in computers than me. He also knows the Tanakh. Excellent. Okay, so remember, guys, how did Shaul meet Shmuel? Because they've lost the family donkeys. And someone says, oh, Shaul, good news. There's a, there's a Jose around here. There's a seer who could figure out where your donkeys are. So there is, now, I don't think that's so terrible if there's one counterexample. So usually people ask me, wait, reverse sounds great for, I don't know, Yeshayo and Yermio, but what about Shaul going to find the family donkeys? Fine. I think we can live with one counterexample. But it is interesting what Alicia just said. He's right. Alicia, I'm going to think about your question. That my whole shear is about the Avot, and the Avot's prophecy seems much more to focus on the predictive element than on, than on the uh, muster element of how to be a good person. I'll just say one thing, Alicia. I like your question a lot. It would only really challenge the end of my shear, not the whole first part. Right? Because if this year still is, why are the Avot nervous? We have five good categories. Right? My opinion that the, the security one. would come from mitzvot, that would be more where your question would come up. Right? 
Yeah, although I also had a question about the third category. I think, yeah, go I for think it. the first go is for it. my favorite. Um, the third category isn't, isn't arguing that, um, saying that a vague and bad and like low quality prophecy won't eliminate fear is not an argument. No, but wait, I think it'd be unfair. It's not low quality. The argument is that it's purposely ambiguous. It's not like, like that God had an off day and didn't write clearly, right? The claim is it was meant to be ambiguous, that Rabia votes a year could go both ways. Okay, if you if you say that it's meant to be ambiguous, then what's the point of delivering an of of ambi- uh, delivering an ambiguous prophecy? Okay, that's an interesting question, but uh, I guess I'll leave it for another time. Okay, that is an interesting question. No, but what about? Well, let me ask a question, Alicia. Would you ask the same question about the Ninveh example or that you could deliver? If I said Odar Bimyon the Ninveh is purposely ambiguous because there there's a clear purpose, right? What overturning means depends on how you act. So. If you see some ambiguity, you might be motivated to act more uh, more responsibly. I think the Nineveh prophecy is, is like one of the best prophecies because it's not ambiguous. It will happen. It depends on which kind of overturning will happen. That's why okay, it's a so, prophecy. Wait, so can't we can't say the same Aravya vote say here that somehow the Yaakov Asif relationship is never going to be fully equal. For whatever reason, there's always going to be like this political power struggle. But how that's going to play out is the contingent part, right? Isn't that roughly similar? You don't think so. How is that not the same as the second answer of you have a prophecy, you just don't know how exactly it's going to play out? No, because, okay, very interesting. Rob, you have votes, and I guess we'll wrap it up after this, but I'm very glad Alicia's pushing on this. Excellent, Alicia. Alicia, is your mom still on? Is she getting a nachas there? I don't, I don't know. Let me just see if she's still on. Uh, there she yeah, is. Yeah. Great, good news. Okay, excellent. Okay, so, and I'm going to check the chat questions also. Ah, Okay. Dan Fendel, you're not, you're good at computers and you know Tanakh and you're an honest man because he was actually thinking about a different show story, but very good. Okay, actually your story works too. Okay, now, um, just to get back to Alicia's point, I think this is the difference. Rav Yavot Seir, we're saying, we don't know what it means. Who is going to serve who? But when Yaakov is told, you're going to have a lot of kids and he knows that's true. He's just not sure which kids they'll be. Right. So I think it's not, I know it's, it is a certain similarity, Alicia, but it's not that the words are ambiguous. Okay. Rav Yavotzi were saying there's two ways to read the sense, right? Is the sense the elder will serve the younger or the elder will be served by the younger? So there's two ways to read the sense. Whereas in the Ebed Ezra example, we're saying there's only one way to read the sense. Yaakov will have a lot of children. It's just not clear who those children will be. Okay. I admit it's a subtle distinction, but I think there is a distinction there. Okay, yeah, David Glassman, yeah, so I do not know if there's going to be another class about the end of Nevoah, but I would be happy to give such a class. So we will see how things play out here. Okay, anybody else with a comment or question? Okay, we are going to wrap it up. I want to say once again, I thoroughly enjoy learning with you guys online, and I am already looking forward to the next one. And a uh, special shout out to my mom again. Okay, very loyal mother for coming to my shir. Oh, we had two mothers getting nachas today. What a day. Okay, we had my mother and Alicia's mother. Okay, a good day for mothers. All right, everybody have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Really my pleasure. Thank you.